Hi, I'm Michael O'Connell, host of the It's All Journalism podcast. For more than a decade, It's All Journalism has produced a weekly podcast featuring interviews with working journalists, educators, and media thought leaders, all discussing the ever-changing media landscape. We've covered a wide range of topics such as solutions journalism, mental health in the newsroom, local news startups, investigative reporting, online harassment, and new technology. Over the years, It's All Journalism partnerships have played important roles in expanding our reach and ensuring that we are able to continue producing our weekly podcast series. We are currently seeking new partners to help us keep this podcast going. If you believe in It's All Journalism's mission, if you want to see these conversations continue, go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the partnerships link and find out how we can share your company or organization's good work with a wider audience. Maybe we can produce a podcast series for you or host your next webinar. The It's All Journalism team is ready to spotlight your organization's good work and keep these important conversations going. Go to itsalljournalism.com, click on the partnerships link, and let's collaborate. And now, here's our latest episode. What are we going to give up? What are we going to get when we give that up? We have a really complicated collective set of decisions to make and actions to take. And we can't do that if we don't have a robust and healthy public sphere. With more people than ever acknowledging that climate change is a real thing, what changes do journalists need to make to better reflect that reality in their coverage? And what forces are at play that are hindering their ability to do just that? I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Adrian Russell is the Mary Laird Wood Professor and co-director of the Center for Journalism, Media and Democracy in the Department of Communication at the University of Washington. She's also the author of the new book, The Mediated Climate, How Journalists, Big Tech, and activists are vying for our future. Adrian, welcome to the It's All Journalism podcast. Thank you so much, Michael. It's great to be here. You know, before we turn to the mics, we talked about the fact that we had both gone to Indiana University, you know, one of the great schools. <laughs> but I, I do want to find out a little bit about you beyond that. You know, tell me, when did you first get interested in journalism and, and what led to your current position at the University of Washington? Yeah, sure. So I actually grew up in California and went to UC Santa Cruz as an undergraduate. And really, I first became interested in journalism there. And I worked for the newspaper City on the Hill, uh, which was just the campus newspaper. But I also, one of my first reporting jobs was at a bilingual newspaper in Watsonville, California called El Andar. And I think it's still around, actually. And I remember like, the stage of my life where I really became interested in journalism was when I was working there. And one of my first big feature assignments was to cover the impacts of pesticides on farm workers in the region. And it was such a heartbreaking story, but also so interesting to get a chance to talk to the people who are being really adversely affected by these chemicals who couldn't work or who were, you know, sick without health insurance. And then also on the other side to talk to like EPA officials who had sanctioned the use of these chemicals, but, you know, obviously weren't aware or didn't care about the impact on these workers and their communities. And so, you know, that really was the start of me thinking about sort of the power of journalism and like the limits of the power, but also the potential power. You know, I ended up actually pursuing a PhD rather than a career in journalism, in part because 
I'm really interested in exploring how journalism fits in with democracy and these questions of like, now that, you know, the landscape is evolving so significantly, like what constitute journalism? How can we do it better? You know, what's getting in the way of good journalism actually reaching people and these sorts of things, which I felt was better suited as a researcher than a journalist. But also, interestingly, at the time in the late 90s, when I was like deciding on a career path, journalism was already like a profession that people were struggling to get, you know, secure jobs and, you know, make a sustainable living. And so it's interesting to me that like, we're still facing that all these years later. You know, it's a very precarious profession to have, but still we need it so much that, you know, it's a shame that it hasn't evolved into like a more secure profession. The story you shared about the migrant workers or the workers in the fields, I mean, did any of that lead to any change? Well, that's a good question because I was like 20 <laughs> and it was my first feature story. So it was a community weekly and I feel like, you know, it didn't, I don't think, you know, but I do feel like there was some element of, yeah, I mean, there. if we're talking about impact journalism, I think that was part of my frustration. Like I felt as if maybe figuring all these things out and doing a really conscientious job of reporting it would change something, but it didn't really. And, you know, that raised a lot of questions about like, you know, what does? And, you know, maybe if I had been a high profile New York Times reporter, it might have had a better chance. But yeah, no, I don't think it really changed much, to be honest. <laughs> okay. But, you know, that's important type of work that people don't always think about when they're thinking about journalists and journalism what we do, that's a place where we can be very impactful. And if there are things that are, are preventing us from disseminating information or we're losing journalists who, you know, newsroom shrink and suddenly there aren't enough people to cover those types of stories, those are the ones that really hurt, I think. What led to this book, The Mediated Climate? Yeah. So like I said, I've been long interested in just like the power dynamics of the, our communication environment and particularly how journalism fits in. And about 15 years ago, I was invited to join this research group that is funded by some Nordic research network funds. It was led by two researchers, Elizabeth Ida and Risto Kunlis. Risto's Finnish and Elizabeth is Norwegian, and they gathered a collection of researchers from around the world. I think, you know, at any given time, we were between 15 and 20 different researchers, and we were like monitoring and analyzing the coverage of major global climate events. So the annual COP summits, the IPCC report releases to sort of get a sense of how coverage changed, how they differed in different countries. And when we started this, it was mostly focused on newspaper coverage, but as it evolved, so was journalism. And so we started looking more at activism and online communication and, you know, the sort of dispatches that were being put out by like NGOs that were present at these global summits. And it really got me interested in like the whole dynamics, like what are the factors that shape how we as publics are talking about and acting on the climate crisis. And I started first by looking in depth at how journalism was evolving. And, you know, journalism for a long time was to some extent part of the problem. So we've known about the climate crisis or climate change since 
at least the 80s, but you can go as far back as, you know, the early 19th century, but it was well publicized within American politics, you know, as early as the 1980s. And instead of sort of reporting on it, you know, based on the science, a lot of journalists did this sort of both siderism, which promoted denialists to a level that they, one, don't exist and two, shouldn't have space. And so it gave a sort of distorted picture to the public of what was going on. But there has been a sort of reckoning in the last 15, 10 years, where especially journalists dedicated to the climate beat or, you know, environmental related beats have really adjusted their practices to avoid being mouthpieces for the fossil fuel industry and for climate deniers. And they really ramped up their coverage, both in terms of quantity and quality. And I'm not talking about all news outlets. I'm talking about the journalists and the journalism outlets that are, you know, making a concerted effort to report the issues in a way that benefits the public interest rather than, you know, various other reasons people do journalism. So you mentioned the 80s. And I remember this this came out of the you know, the anti-pollution push in the 60s and the 70s where, you know, we ended up having the EPA formed. And that was something that I remember talking about in science class, the pollution that was going to cause this. It wasn't so much the ozone per se, but there was an awareness of it. And I believe in your book, you mentioned that sort of the public's position has shifted more recently. Well, there's a lot of things have happened, you know, both in terms of the climate and in terms of the coverage and in terms of people's, you know, reaction to what's going on. So yes, the coverage has shifted. You know, you would be hard pressed to find anyone who's not impacted by the climate crisis now. For a long time, it was something that, of course, if you lived off the land or you lived in certain parts of the world, you were already feeling it was something that was reported here in the United States as something that was coming in the future. Well, the future is definitely here. This summer, if not, you know, I think for a lot of people in Washington, for example, we now have fire season. And that's the same with, you know, Oregon, California, a lot of parts of the United States and a lot of parts of the world. So, you know, I don't think there's a a big question among most people about whether or not it exists because we're living it on a daily basis. But I think the question that remains is what are we going to do about it? And this is why I really think it's important to look at the climate crisis through the lens of communication, not just science, because we know the science. We know that this is happening. We know why. We know what's going to happen, more or less, based on you know models that various sorts of climate scientists have created for the future. But we don't know what we're collectively going to decide to do about it. And that's where we need to be communicating with one another. This is why we need not just information from journalists and from scientists and from communities that are experiencing these things firsthand, but we need to understand what are the values and ethics that we share that we can apply to deciding how to do this. What are we going to change? What are we going to give up? What are we going to get when we give that up, you know? So these are the things like we have a really complicated collective set of decisions to make and actions to take. And we can't do that if we don't have a robust and healthy public sphere. Okay. What do newsrooms need to do to sort of change the way they're covering climate change? Well, I mean, 
In the book, I really focus on what they have done that has really improved coverage. And so I can talk a little bit about that. And certainly when we're talking about journalism and the media, it's so broad that to make generalizations, it it doesn't work. So I'm not talking about Fox News. I'm talking about the people who are dedicated to producing high quality climate reporting. And those people are collaborating with one another. So there's much less competition between outlets or among journalists and much more collaboration. They're collaborating with scientists. They're changing the way they cover activism. There's a long and well-documented tradition of mainstream news media disparaging and dismissing activists as sort of like, you know, kooky people who can't follow the rules and break windows in, in downtown spaces without ever asking what they're protesting about or what the issues are at hand. And that's really changed. There's a much less derogatory stance towards activism and much more, um, you know, sort of covering activists in the spirit of people acting and using their democratic rights to push back against the wrongs that they're seeing. So they're doing all that. And they're also focusing much more on the cultural and community fallouts and issues that are related to the climate crisis. So the climate crisis is the impacts of it are extremely unequally distributed. And this is a huge story that overlaps with a lot of other stories that our society is currently grappling with, right? Like income inequality, inequality of resources is also amounting to, you know, more deaths in cities when there's heat spikes because there's less green spaces and places for people to go keep cool. So these questions moving away from strictly the science and into the questions of what are we doing and why are these so, you know, these inequities so exacerbated by the current situation? I think that's good climate journalism. And I think one of the problems or one of the major problems is that we assume that the best information will rise to the top. We've always assumed this. This is like the, you know, liberal model of like, put it all out there. Everybody can say whatever toxic stuff they want to say, whatever wrong stuff, whatever lies, whatever abusive stuff, but the good stuff will float to the top. But that's not the case. Our current information environment is built, in fact, to the contrary, to benefit and to, you know, make most prominent sensationalistic information, emotion fanning information, or I shouldn't even call it information, just communication. And so it's a dynamic that's kind of gamed against good journalism, whereby journalists are doing all this great work. And it's, you know, entering into a, a communication environment that's fundamentally polluted. So it doesn't really get the air that it needs to connect with the people it needs to connect with. I've talked to a number of journalists who expressed frustration about a lot of things, about the way their companies were covering, you know, certainly race, you know, the Me Too movement and things like that. And, you know, they were sort of at odds with this idea of what, what everybody sort of perceived as traditional journalism, like, you know, we have to be detached, et cetera. But then, then you see things like, 
you know, practices of solutions journalism, where you, where you identify something that's impacting a particular community and you sort of put your resources toward that. Mm-hmm. Can you give some of the examples of maybe some of the partnerships you mentioned? Yeah. So, I mean, there's great partnerships. I don't know if you're familiar with like some of these more niche climate news sites like Grist it has a partnership right now with AP. AP just about a year ago hired a climate coordination editor where they go out and get local news sources to piece together stories about local climate issues rather than like sending somebody in to report on a place that they're not familiar with. And more than that, just like on various beats, climate journalists are exchanging information and helping each other out. And really like the goal is like to make the information and the stories and the coverage more robust. But I can also give you an example of like a story that really surprisingly to me, just because I just happened to be seeing it, promoted solutions in a really mainstream context. The other day I was watching an interview with Michael Mann, the climate scientist on CNN about the fires in Lahaina. And Michael Mann was talking about how there are all these different factors that contributed to the severity of the fires. And the part that had to do with the climate crisis were that the winds are much stronger and the environment is much drier. And he did a a really good job of pointing out that the reason why it's important to acknowledge this, along with all the other things that went wrong, like the alert system didn't work and, you know, there are questions of like power lines coming down and starting the fires. The reason it's important to know and to acknowledge and to note this is because the winds are stronger and it's drier and it's hotter. So we need to prepare for that. We need to like make those power lines wind resistance. If we're not acknowledging that this is going to keep happening, then we're not able to prepare our cities and our towns and ourselves for what's coming. So that to me was like an organic sort of solutions journalism that came out of this really good interview with this really good source. So one of the things you you said earlier on was about the type of journalism that, you know, maybe it isn't what we think of as a traditional like newspaper front page newspaper story with graphs and photos and things, different ways of presenting this information to people. Have you seen good examples of that? There's a center, a climate communication center at Yale that produces 90 second climate stories because they figured out that a lot of radio stations have 90 second slots that they need to fill between stories and advertisers. So they produce these things every day and they just ship them out to radio stations and they run them. Or, you know, for example, ProPublica does a lot of, you know, they do reporting and then they share it with you know, whoever wants to run with it. So these sorts of things where, you know, it's not about getting eyeballs onto a certain website or news outlet to sell advertising shares, you know, it's more about like getting people informed. So the other parties that you mentioned are activists and big tech. What's the disconnect there? Well, I mean, okay, so the story is (laughs) that, you know, that I sort of tell in the book is that you know, there's been these really concerted efforts and vast improvements in journalism, but it sort of doesn't stand a chance in the larger information environment. And, you know, there's also been a really 
to my way of thinking, heartening coming together of activists to protest things like the pipelines in Canada and, you know, Fridays for the Future, which is the youth driven movement to, you know, that's advocating that like politicians think about future generations and that they actually act on science. And, you know, of course, there's a lot of criticism about activism in general always, but these are people who are going out there and resisting what they see as wrongs that are happening right now. But what happens with both journalists and activists is their communication is extremely challenged online because, I mean, there's tons of benefits, right? Let's talk about that first. The internet allows people to connect, you know, allows journalists to access experts. So like if you're a journalist who doesn't live in a region where there's a big university, you can connect with scientists to help you, you know, explain your story to your readers online. There's all sorts of connections that can be made and communities that are built online. But at the same time, there's all sorts of noise and all sorts of incivility online as well. And in my research, I found that journalists and scientists and activists spend an enormous amount of time and resources and energy trying to protect themselves from this noise and incivility. So, I mean, I can give you a couple examples. You know, the fossil fuel industry has been you know, campaigning to promote doubt and then, you know, also to sort of promote this idea that they are part of the solution for a very long time. But they're also, you know, constantly spreading doubt about what that it exists, but more recently where the solutions lie. So, you know, they've started talking a lot about individual responsibility in part because it shifts the blame away from themselves. But also there's just tons of misinformation. You know, some of it is less odious or intentional than others, but it's just out there and it's pretty hard to parse for an everyday person what is true and what is not online. And then there's this whole element of like meteorologists the world over are getting death threats for connecting heat waves to the climate crisis. Activists are, you know, getting harassed and threatened. Journalists are getting, there's so many of our leading voices in these issues have, you know, been threatened and gotten death threats. And this is not conducive to healthy public discourse. And so that's the sort of part of the story that I feel like we need to focus on fixing. And this kind of links up to something we were talking about more at the beginning, this idea that we have this assumption that the good information will rise to the top and that it's fine, that you know everybody has a right to speak. But those rights encroach on everybody's right to be heard and everybody's right to live in a toxic free environment, both in the physical world and the information world, right? So I think it's worth a conversation, you know, and more to consider like whose freedom are we protecting at this point when most, you know, women and most women of color don't feel like they can speak online. Most climate scientists either grow a very thick skin or stop their public, you know, appearances. That's not good for the climate conversation. So <laughs> the other part of it is the way that our information is shared on the platforms. 
you know, are there any solutions to that? Do we have any say in how we can maybe parse out our good information or, or create avenues of verified, trustworthy information? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not a big fan of putting it on individual responsibility. You know, of course, you should all teach our kids not to be fooled by the fake website, right? But that's not a solution in mass. And we should have options because presumably we live in a democracy. So the options are to, you know, hold platform owners and responsible for the content on their platforms. The option is, you know, to pressure lawmakers to actually impose some sorts of regulation that protects everyday people, not just the interests of the tech companies. I mean, these companies are built exactly the way they are in order to make a profit. It's not a like a side effect or a mistake that this is what we have right now. This is the way they were built. So we tried doing the like no regulation thing and it's not working. I mean, even since Musk took over Twitter, incidences of harassment and threats to climate scientists and journalists and activists have skyrocketed because he fired his sustainability staff and he fired the people who were designing mechanisms to get rid of hate speech and you know and harassment on the platform and he's actually suing a nonprofit that's trying to monitor the disinformation on Twitter. And more than that, Republican lawmakers have launched a legal campaign against universities who are studying disinformation. These are not like by the way things. These are things that are constructed to put power in certain hands and take it away from others. So I think if we, you know, if we had more maybe the best kind of climate coverage would be tech coverage. <laughs> you know, like if we had more information and more stories about these sort of mechanisms that undercut public's ability to act, we might, you know, be more successful in coming together. It's an interesting example that you give because on the one hand, you can make that whole argument it has nothing to do with climate. It has to do with just being able to get good you know, verified information out to people. A hundred percent. It's a part of a thing that we, we should be doing anyway. Right. Uh, and if we were to do that, hey, one of the benefits is going to be, you know, more people will be able to get good information, timely information about climate change. So, you know, what are your hopes for the future as far as the way journalism is covering climate change and how we're getting that information to people? Well, I mean, my hope is that, journalism keeps going on the trajectory that it's going right now, where not only are individual journalists and outlets dedicated to quality coverage, but the, you know, sort of public sphere is ready to shout down outlets that aren't doing it. And there's some interesting recent examples of this. Like last week, ABC had a headline that said something like, the wildfires in Maui can't be attributed to climate change. And they had quoted a climate scientist from UCLA who was like, I didn't say that. They to totally took that out of context. What he said is that there were other factors that made it, that exacerbated the fires, but that, you know, certainly climate change has something to do with it. So they changed their headline to like, can't be entirely attributed to climate change. But what was more interesting was all of the outrage 
by people who are paying attention to these things about that, which, you know, sort of signals to other outlets, like you can't just put a headline on there without thinking about the impacts. The only thing that does is fuel climate doubt, you know, and certainly any thinking responsible outlet is not going to be doing that, right? So anyway, I mean, my hope is that resources and talent and re reflection keep, you know, infusing climate journalism and that we, you know, move more towards conversations about, you know, collectively deciding on solutions and addressing inequity and, you know, acknowledging, you know, why these things have happened in order so that we can avoid them in the future. You've certainly given us a lot to think about. Again, this is not a problem we're going to solve soon, but people should should look for your book. What's the title again? It's called The Mediated Climate, How Journalists, Big Tech, and Activists Are Vying for Our Future. And hint, we hope that the activists and journalists win <laughs> and that the big tech reforms. That's the hope. We've got our fingers crossed. Adrian, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Bolevsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.